Isaiah chapter 26. Again, I want to talk this morning about two verses and one spiritual principle really that comes out of those. And this spiritual principle is one that we very much want to believe is true. And we very much hope it's true. And we constantly look for evidence that it's true. But the fact is that sometimes this principle creates, we have some doubt about it. And we get a little bit frustrated maybe even as we hear about it because our minds too easily are convinced that it might not be true. We want it to be true. We want to believe that it's real. But sometimes our minds get in the way. That's really kind of a a microcosm. That's kind of a summary of the whole book of Isaiah. That God was giving this word of promise, that God was giving his assurance that he would help them and restore them as a nation and would bless them and guide them and be their God. But the people still were hesitant and they had been hesitant for hundreds and thousands of years. God kept giving them his word. He kept giving them proof that he was going to be faithful and that he was faithful and that he would help them and he would guide them. But the people just weren't really fully receptive to God's word. And Isaiah, throughout this book and throughout his ministry, calls them to get right with the Lord. But the people wouldn't learn from the lessons of the past and they wouldn't see the potential consequences of the rebellion, even though Isaiah makes it clear to them. And he keeps coming back to the fact that God wants to deliver them and help them. Now, just to give some context on the time frame of this, this is about seven centuries before Christ. Isaiah's ministry ran from about 740 B.C. to about 700 B.C. And in chapter 1, it tells us that his ministry uh, took place primarily to the nation of Judah. That was the southern two tribes. And it took place during the reign of four different kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Now, both Israel, the ten tribes, and Judah, the two tribes, were deep into rebellion at this point. And they were worshiping false gods, and they were indifferent toward the Lord. And eventually, in 722 B.C., right in the middle of Isaiah's ministry, Israel's taken away by Assyria into captivity, and the nation is devastated and desolated, and, and it's just barren at this point. So God's judgment and discipline on their chronic, uh, just kind of uh, hostile rebellion against him finally comes to fruition in 722 B.C. Now, for another 138 years, Judah just kind of exists and in some senses even prospers until Babylon comes in 583 B.C. and does the same thing that Assyria had done to Israel. It takes them away into captivity. Now, Israel and Judah at this point are devastated. They're scattered. It's called the diaspora. They're they're spread out. And they really don't even come back till 1948 when the nation becomes formed again. And there's still Jews spread out throughout the world. And someday they'll all be gathered back. But, But this is kind of the defining point. And Isaiah at this point is ministering primarily to Judah to tell them, hey, learn from what just happened, Israel. Don't repeat the same mistakes. Don't follow the same pattern but remember in all of this as you're learning and being exposed to this judgment of God remember that God is faithful to his people and he will deliver you when you turn back to him 
Now, chapter 26 of Isaiah, which is our text this morning, is, is part of that forward look. Isaiah is describing what it will look like and what Judah will say when they finally turn back to the Lord and when he shows his full mercy and favor on them. And it's ironic that the, that the realization and the understanding that they come to uh, about, future na- about other nations in the future is, is so uh, blind to them now. In fact, when we read verses 10 to 11 in a second, they're going to say things about other nations down the road that are absolutely true of them at this time. So, all right, you ready? Isaiah chapter 26, let's start in verse 1. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city, they'll say. He sets up walls and ramparts for security. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the one that remains faithful. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. For he has brought low those who dwell on high, the unassailable city. He lays it low. He lays it low to the ground. He casts it to the dust. The foot will trample it. The feet of the afflicted, the steps of the helpless. Verse 7 is our key verse for this morning. The way of the righteous is smooth. O upright one, make the path of the righteous level. Indeed, while following the way of your judgments, Lord, we have waited for you eagerly. Your name, even your memory, is the desire of our souls. At night, my soul longs for you. Indeed, my spirit within me seeks you diligently. For when the earth experiences your judgments, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. Though the wicked is shown favor, he does not learn righteousness. He deals unjustly in the land of uprightness and does not perceive the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, verse 11, your hand is lifted up, yet they don't see it. They see your zeal for the people and are put to shame. Indeed, fire will devour your enemies. Lord, you will establish peace for us since you've also performed for us all your works. Now that city that Isaiah talks about in verses 1 and 2 is very interesting because it's both a literal reference to Jerusalem in the future and it's also a figurative picture of the promise of heaven. In verse 2, that image is even stronger. And he talks about the fact that only those who are faithful and righteous will go into the city. This is an argument against universal salvation that ultimately everybody just goes to heaven no matter how they live and what they believe. He says it's only for the righteous. And the righteous enter only because they've trusted the Lord. And only because he's made this, them righteous. And in response to that trust and in making them righteous and making us righteous, then they have been faithful in their conviction and have stood firm for their faith. Now, even though we know this is directed toward Israel, this is a powerful promise to us. And it reminds us ultimately that we have citizenship in heaven. That someday when we die or when the Lord returns, that our citizenship as believers is in heaven. But while we wait for that, the Bible says that we are supposed to live in the present, knowing that, and in the conviction of being his children. A lot of people are sitting around today, and they're looking at all the different signs, and they're trying to interpret what's happening in the country, and in the world, and who said this, and what did this, and does this fulfill Daniel, the revelation, and that's wonderful. That's that's great to have an interest in prophecy, but they become so obsessed about it that they forget that the present reality is 
We have to live as children of conviction. And we have to be sharing that with other people. We have to be telling people the hope of the gospel. Because as Jude said, there's still people with one foot in the fire. They're, they're already halfway to hell, so to speak. And our responsibility as the body is not to look down on them or criticize them or say, oh, poor pitiful people that are going to hell. It's to have that fervor and that passion to reach them while there's still time. Always with an eye toward heaven. Always with an eye that the Lord, believe it or not, is going to come back sooner than we possibly think. And we will be caught, many of us, unaware because it will come like a thief in the night. So we have to be so fervent for our faith, looking toward heaven. As Paul says, I can't wait to get there. It'd be better for me to be dead so I can be there. But while I'm here, oh, the responsibility that I have. It's absolutely tremendous. We're part of his family and his spirit secures us and leads us. And we have his power and strength and guidance now. Listen, our citizenship as believers this morning is not uncertain. How many know that's true? It is not uncertain. It is sure. It is the promise of God. Nothing about it hangs in the balance. It's not to be decided later. You've put your faith in Christ and we might see. When you put your faith in Christ your citizenship in heaven is guaranteed now. Now, that's not an excuse for complacency. It's not an excuse for lazy discipleship. We need to be living like we're already there. And to be honest, I've noticed increasingly disturbing trend among Christianity. Whether it's old school Christianity or emergent Christianity, doesn't matter. This is a very subtle trend. It's advancing the idea that because we can't, quote, mess up our salvation, that we can live however we want. Now, that impacts how we think. It impacts what's being taught. It impacts how ministry is being done. And there's kind of this latent smugness that I'm seeing in Christianity because there's very little awe. There's very little fear of sin. There's very little little uh, sense of the danger of worldliness. In fact, there's an embrace of worldliness because there's a loss of awe for the Word of God and for Christ Himself. Paul warns about this in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. He says it's unthinkable that we would exercise too much liberty so grace can abound, not only because it's a compromise of our walk and witness, but essentially because it mocks the sacrifice of Christ. Paul says, how would we continue to sin? How would we continue to live like the world? That's the whole essence of Romans 5 to 8. Why would we go back and live like we're still in bondage? May it never be. Jesus has delivered us from this. It would mock his sacrifice to be worldly at this point. Think about the impact of those verses. When sin comes calling, when there's temptation there. That's why Paul says in Philippians 2.12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, that word means accomplish it, make it happen. In other words, prove it. Not that we're proving that, not that we're accomplishing our salvation. That's not what he's saying. He's saying because you've been saved, prove that you're saved by how you live. It's the same message of the book of James. Not how much play there is with the word. Not how much latitude there can be to manipulate the word and manipulate 
at what the Lord says and what the Lord allowed so we can be kind of culturally cool. Listen, don't fall into that trap. That verse is saying every day, Christian, now this is for us. Listen, every day provide undeniable evidence that what the Lord has done in changing you is real and it's wonderful in your life. Every day, every moment, provide that undeniable evidence. And then he says at the end of the verse, do it with fear and trembling. There's nothing flippant about that. There's nothing arrogant. There's nothing smug. It's not clever. It's not cutting corners. It's not looking for the gray areas and how can I live so I can kind of walk the line. It's not saying, well, the Lord doesn't really care what I do now because he said nothing. I can't lose my salvation and nothing can separate me from the love of God. So I'll just sin and confess. This is a call to serious, respectful, faithful living as a set-apart, sanctified disciple of Jesus Christ. And that's why when you look back at this text in chapter 26, let's get to the text now, there are clear qualifications, three of them, for this promise to be fulfilled in a believer's life. It's in verses 2, 3, 4, and 8. Let's go through them quickly. First of all, first qualification is there must be personal righteousness. This is in verse 2. Righteousness is only made possible by the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. Romans 5.19 says that through the work of Christ's sacrifice, many are made righteous. Nothing else can do that. Not the law, not works, not anything. But while the work of Christ makes us righteous, there is also responsibility after that that we've been given because we've been made righteous. We have choices before us every day. And sin is still begging for our response. Sin is still begging for our loyalty. I've been saved 37 years this summer, and I'll tell you, it's just as acute as the day I got saved. Sin is still saying, hey, Rhodes, come here. Anybody else experience that on a daily basis? Sin still calls and says, come on. Come on, you've been saved a long time, but come on, live a little. And at the same time, on the other side, we're called to intentionally stand for the Lord. It's all throughout Scripture. From Elijah standing before the people and saying, choose this day who you will serve, to God himself in 2 Corinthians 6 saying, come out and be separate, to Paul saying throughout his epistles, flee sin, put off youthful lusts, Resist the devil. Walk circumspectly. Take every thought captive. In other words, all throughout Scripture, we learn there is an intentionality to living righteously. And while, yes, the Lord imparts righteousness on us and gives us a new nature and a renewed mind, he also says, now you, believer, have to live in that. If he didn't expect us to do that, he wouldn't give us the whole New Testament. Because the whole New Testament from the Gospels on, says this is how to live. Now that you're saved, now that you get it, this is the choice you're supposed to make. This is how you're supposed to live. This is how you're supposed to respond to your new nature. So there has to be personal righteousness first. Second, would you look at verses 3 and 4? We must trust in the Lord fully. 
Our diligence and obedience starts with the determined attitude of our mind. I love verse 3. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. That word steadfast literally means to, to lean on and uphold. It's like me leaning on this pulpit right now. I'm leaning on it so it holds me up because if I took my hands away, my face would go right into that wood and I would break my nose again. Not that I've done that with the pulpit, but I've broken the nose. You can't tell. So steadfast means that that you're leaning on it. It's upholding you. It's strengthening you and supporting you and you're relying on it to stand firm. Now look at what happens when our mind is leaning on the Lord, okay? You get the thought? God says, I promise I will keep you in perfect peace. The word there means to watch over and guard and protect. It has the connotation in the Hebrew language of a watchman on the tower of a castle who is constantly scanning the horizon, looking for danger, constantly guarding and protecting the inhabitants that are inside, prepared always ready, never sleeping, always with an eye on what's happening. Now, God says, I will do that for you, and I will keep you, I will guard you to the extent that you will be in perfect peace. In other words, he's not just going to keep us kind of safe, and he's not going to hopefully secure us. He says, there will be no doubt, I will do this without fail, I'm going to give you something that you desire but cannot manufacture. I will give you perfect peace. It's the Hebrew word shalom. It means complete peace. There's no lack. So what does verse 3 say? It's very simple but profound. We receive peace only when we trust in the Lord. Not for a short time, not when it's convenient, not when we feel like it. But verse 4 says, when we trust in the Lord, tell me the first line, forever. Forever. Faith is not temporary. It's not circumstantial. It's not emotional. It's not supposed to waver according to James 1.5. It is supposed to be steadfast. Oh, our mind, pray God that our minds this week would be steadfast. And that you would give us complete peace. Why? Look at it. Because he's our everlasting rock. He's our strength and our sufficiency. And that promise is vital because it shows how essential it is that our mind is set on the Lord. Listen, there's no doubt that there is an ongoing insidious battle for the heart and mind of every person who lives. It's made more blatantly obvious when we see events like the shooting in Norway and the awful devastation that that man caused. But we don't need evidence like that to know that that battle exists. The pervasiveness of information, the the misconstruing and the the changing of the Word of God, the polarization away from the Bible and of Christianity – the the mainstreaming of sin, the the promotion of sin, it's all an attack on the mind like we have never seen before, and that's not an overstatement. The Bible, the battle is even more acute when a disciple's involved. Because then the battle is, 
Or are you going to give in to temptation and live for yourself and go back to your future life? Or are you really, Christian, come on now, the devil baits us with this. Are you really going to be completely submitted to that God you've never seen? Really? You're going to, that's, that's what you're going with, right? Now, I saw this principle yesterday morning as I was weeding in our garden. And I was out there, and it was hot and humid, and I wasn't real particularly happy. And um, I, I'm, I'm working, and I, and I started to pray. And I said, Lord, I, I need some spiritual insight into what I'm doing because I'm not really enjoying it very much. So can you, can you just, you know, I know what I'm preaching tomorrow. I know the passage. Can you give me some, some spiritual insight into this and, and, and help me understand how this fits in because we've done this series on fruit and I knew this would kind of be the, the last message in it. And almost instantly, three simple spiritual principles became obvious to me. How many know that when you're going through your day, you need to pray that prayer often? Lord, I'm in the mundane right now. I'm doing something that doesn't seem at all profound. So Lord, teach me some, some spiritual insight here. That's a great prayer to pray. Pray that this week as you're going through your life. And, and you have something happen. Lord, just give me some spiritual insight of that. Every time the Lord will teach you something fresh, He'll remind you of a verse that will broaden your understanding of something you haven't thought about lately. For me, it was three basic principles that I could see in the garden that illustrate how the mind's attacked. And the danger that there is if our mind isn't steadfast. Number one, you may want to write these down. I think these are, these are good. Not because they're from me, they're from the Lord. The first one is that when we allow our sin to remain, our mind gets entangled in it. When we allow sin to remain, our mind gets entangled in it. Second Peter 2.20 says that engaging in the corrupt desires of the flesh and, and embracing them in our life causes us to neglect the word of God. It takes away our insight and our eyes become full of adultery. We become living in the instinct and living in sensuality and we forget the right way. And this is not for an unbeliever. This is talking to a believer. It says, even after having known the Lord and Savior, when we allow this, our mind becomes entangled. Now, we got some pictures that I took this morning. If you guys wouldn't mind putting the first one up. These are pictures I actually took in the garden of the strawberry bushes. And you can see, unless you're an absolute expert gardener, it's, it's pretty hard to figure out where the strawberry bushes are. If you go to the next one, I'd appreciate it. You can just see how the weeds have kind of come in. And they're entangled, they're wrapped around. If you go to the next one, please, thank you. They're just wrapped around. So I, I walk up to this, and I'm already in a chipper mood, right? Because it's like 85 and 400% humidity. And, and I'm already dripping before I get out there. And I walk up to this bed, and I look at it and go, yeah, maybe I'll weed something else. I, I don't even know where to start with that. Because while the strawberry bushes are there, the weeds now have been allowed to prosper, so to speak, and they're now wrapped. And you can pull back, and, and you can't tell where the weeds start and the plants start. This is 2 Peter 2.20. This is the concept of Isaiah 26.3. So me, in my beautiful green thumb skills that I have, 
and that's very tongue-in-cheek, I started to try to pull out the weeds, starting at the tops where I could grab them. That didn't work well. So then I tried to go down in and reach in and pull out. And you know what I found? As I tried to pull out the weeds, I also started to pull out strawberry plants because they were wrapped up. The sin, so to speak, of that garden had been allowed to infiltrate and wrap around and integrate and entangle the strawberries. That's what happens when we tolerate sin in our hearts and minds. Pretty soon it starts to become entangled and intertwined with how we think and how we react and the attitude we carry. And it's hard to discern between what's healthy and what's unhealthy. We have to weed. We have to weed. But the longer we allow those weeds to persist, the harder it's going to be, which leads to the second principle. The second principle is it's always best to weed after the rain. Now, last week we talked about the blessing of God and how it's symbolized in the Bible by rain. And Randy referred to that earlier in the service. And the Lord showed us at the end of that service his amazing provision and his amazing faithfulness to us. But listen, it's easy to let the rain soak in and not do the work of promoting new growth. Now, as you may have sensed already, I'm not a big fan of weeding. You could probably use words like detest and despise and loathe. Are those strong enough? And then you add the joyful, wonderful weather that we had yesterday morning where you could pretty much just see the dew rising from the ground after those storms. So, so I get out there and I'm like, I can't believe i got to do this. But I'll tell you one thing. If I'm going to weed, I want to do it after it's rained because that's when it's easiest. It's always harder to weed. Listen now, this is spiritual. It's always harder to weed when the ground is dry. Because the weed breaks off before you get down to the root. And, and, and there are two or three spiritual principles there that we won't even touch. That's why we can't let our spiritual walk get dry. It's why we need to stay close to the Lord during His trials. The, the, remain, the rain reminds us of the goodness and the mercy of the Lord. And it helps us understand that He has plans to bless us and help us to grow. But we've got to weed when the rain falls, listen, the rain fell last Sunday. Don't, don't just say, oh, that was refreshing. Now I can go about my week. Now it's time to look at our lives and say, all right, what needs to come out? How do I need to protect my heart and my mind? What do I need to guard against because it will infiltrate? Let me show you the next picture, what it looked like. And I wish I had a before picture, what it looks like after you eat. This is not the strawberry. This is another bed. But look how clean that is. That took maybe 20 minutes. It was full of weeds. It looked like the other one before. But once you get down there and you weed it out, now what can happen? Those plants, which are jalapeno plants, love the jalapenos, those, those plants are going to grow and flourish, right? Because the weed's not choking them anymore. So we always have to weed after the rain. Third, the bugs always prefer the ripe fruit. The bugs always prefer the right fruit. Now you're like, I came to church this morning and that is not a point I expected to hear. The bugs always prefer the right fruit. Let me tell you where that came from. 
Our, our mutant raspberry bushes now are, are humongous, and we have a ton of raspberries on them. And as I started to pick them yesterday, I saw all those wonderful June bugs sitting on the berries. Now, my wife had politely asked me last spring to please spray the raspberry bushes so we would not have a June bug infestation. Well, you know how lovely our spring was and how it got warm in February and we just basked in the sunshine, right? You remember that? No, you don't remember that because it didn't happen. So I kept putting it off. Paul, you got to spray the raspberry bushes. Yeah, I'll get to it. It's, you know, four degrees outside and I think the spray will freeze as it comes off the nozzle. But I'll get to it. And I kind of put it off, put it off, and never did it. And then I got out there yesterday and I had all those bugs. So annoyed at myself and annoyed at the bugs, I started whacking them and shaking the bushes. And then I kept picking the fruit and I'm mumbling to myself. It's always good when you get older when you start to mumble. It's not a sign of senility at all. And then I started to notice something. Every time I went for the ripest fruit, I noticed there was a bug on it. But when I looked at the unripe fruit or I looked at the fruit that was already moldy, the bugs were messing with it. We've got a picture of it here. The bugs surrounded the healthy fruit. Now, I'm not an expert on June bugs, so I don't really know what that means, but the spiritual truth hit me right away. It's such a picture of the outside influences that distract us and annoy us to the point that we can lose our focus if our mind isn't steadfast. People, circumstances, criticism, they all bug us, and the pun is intended. They all bug us. They annoy us. And usually it's an attack on what's most visible and what's most necessary for the work of the Lord. And we are supposed to stay steadfast because the fruit in our lives is going to get attacked. Don't, don't tell yourself that it won't because it will. The enemy is not going to go after what's dry and what's useless and what's past its prime and what's moldy. He doesn't care about that because that's not hurting his kingdom. What he cares about is the fresh fruit and he's going to attack it. So that leads us to our third qualification for experiencing the promise of God. And this one's a hard one. We must have patience. Now that isn't patience like when I was driving yesterday and the guy pulled out in front of me on a 45-mile-an-hour road and literally, I clocked it, went 14 miles an hour. It's not that patience. I need a big dose of that patience. He's talking about spiritual patience. Look at verse 8 here. This is the patience and endurance that's required to trust in the Lord. It's the patience and endurance to live in the confidence that you are on the right side of the spiritual battle. It's the patience and endurance to not be annoyed by injustice and criticism and rejection of others, including Christians who are not living to a holy standard. It's patience and endurance to wait for the Lord to defend you and to endure in times of worry and anxiety and fear and sadness and trial. Look at verse 7. What it says is the source and strength of that patience. And before you read it, I have a warning. Don't just glide over what's about to be said. Don't just say, well, of course, that's obvious and it's familiar. And, and yeah, okay, I get it. Move to the next point. Don't do that because that's going to be the temptation. This is God's word 
And this is God's answer in verse 7 to our tendency to be impatient and frustrated in each of the situations above. Look actually at the middle of verse 8. He says, we have waited for the Lord eagerly. Whoa, wait a minute. That's, that's not just hanging in there. That's just, oh, I gotta have some patience. I gotta get by. I just gotta make it through today. Just gotta make it to the weekend. Just gotta stop listening to that person. Gotta, gotta stop listening to the doubts of my heart. Oh, I'm so discouraged by, by the criticism or, or the fear or, or whatever it is. This, this is not in verse eight, just getting by. It is proactive and excited and passionate. Listen now about waiting on the Lord. I don't know about you, but that's a hard one for me. Eagerly, Lord, we wait for you. Eagerly, we're anticipating you to act. We know you will. We know you'll defend us. We know you'll sustain us. We know you'll provide for us. But we haven't seen it to its full extent yet. So, Lord, we can't wait. We're not going to lose faith. We're not going to lose confidence. We're not going to get discouraged. We're not going to listen to criticism. We're not going to doubt. We're not going to fear. And we're not going to yield to temptation. We're just going to eagerly wait for you. Now, the only reason we wouldn't want to be patient is because we want to fully understand what's going on at all times and we want to sign off on it. And God never says that's what's going to happen. What he does say, sorry to get so excited, I like this text. He says, listen, look at it, when you are fully walking in righteousness, not in yourself, not in your own wisdom, not with wavering in your faith, not with an unsteady, uptight mind, but with a steadfast mind full of perfect peace, then this is how you're going to think. Look at the end of verse 8. Your name, your memory, it's the desire of our souls. At night my soul longs for you, and indeed my spirit within me seeks you diligently. When we are walking in righteousness, believer, there is an eager anticipation of the Lord's faithful defense and his fresh work. And there is a renewed desire to be in his presence and to defend his name. And there's a deep longing for him and a diligent seeking for him, even in the most difficult times, which is the illusion of at night when the doubts creep in and you're laying in your bed, and you're wondering, and the words of others are echoing in your head, and you're wondering what tomorrow holds, and how it's all going to play out, and you know you can't determine it. At that time, he says, diligently seek the Lord. Have a fire for him. If we doubt his sufficiency and his ability to be victorious, we only have to look back at verses 5 and 6. Look at them for a minute. Because they show us his absolute power and his authority. There's this seemingly powerful city. This is a second city. And it's filled with the wicked. And it says it's on high. And it's unassailable. What a contrast to the city of God in verse 1. Externally everything about the city in verses 5 and 6. 
makes it look like it can't be defeated. And that's the effective lie of the enemy. He always makes it seem like in the end, he's going to win. But he knows what the Lord says about God's power and plan. And we can read it right here. Look at verse 5. He will bring that city low. He will bring it down to the ground. He will make it dust and it will be trampled on, not by warriors, but by the afflicted and the helpless. In other words, those who have experienced the testing of faith and have endured. And they have victory in the Lord. What an awesome picture of God's thorough defense and protection of his people and God's eternal conquest over sin and death. But listen, the enemy won't tell you about that. The enemy can read Revelation just like you and I can. But here's what he does. He loves to mess with our minds and he loves to press the thought that we're weird and unpopular and stupid and convicted about the wrong things. If you look back at verse 1, you see that we're under siege. And part of that attack is that the enemy struts around like he did with Jesus in the temptation in Luke chapter 4. And he says, look at my world. Look at all that I have. Look at what I influence and I control. Did you know I'm called the God of this world? Look at it all. He brazenly says this to Jesus. Jesus, you can have all of it. What a mockery. And he comes to us and he says, look, you can have all of it. How horrible it would be for you. How difficult it will be for you to be in the minority. You need to just give in. And when we start to think that that liar and that accuser is actually right, as my dad would say, when the devil tries to tempt you in the present, remind him of his future. He will lie to us and he will tell us that God is not telling the truth. But here's what the Lord says about our lives when we are faithful to him and confident in him. This is verse 7. This is your memory verse for the week. Put it on a card on your desk or in your car or in your bathroom mirror, or in your refrigerator, I don't care. But we need to memorize this verse. Isaiah 26, 7. The way of the righteous is smooth. O upright one, make the path of the righteous level. This is God's truth. This is what the Spirit assures us. The way of the righteous is smooth. It's level and peaceful. What a contrast to verses 5 and 6 the rocky, violent, just frustration and destruction and confusion of those that are unrighteous. This is the promise of God. Our path as disciples is smooth. Why? Look at the end of the verse. Because the upright one makes the path of the righteous level. Now let's draw this study to a conclusion and let's be very visceral. Because even as I said that last sentence, the temptation in our minds is to kind of recoil emotionally and spiritually. Right now, the enemy is saying in every one of our minds, you can't trust that verse. You can't trust that verse. That's not true. And to you, it may still seem ironic that a righteous person's path 
is called smooth because very often we believe that our path is much harder than the world's, especially when we stand for our convictions. That's because when we stand for our convictions, there is spiritual opposition. And there's personal and relational opposition and hurt. And there's misunderstanding. And there's harsh and unfair criticism. And there's suffering and trials. And there's direct challenges to what we believe. How can any of that be described as smooth? I had a mature believer say to me this week, they were hurting and they were frustrated. And they said, I'm so tired of being on the difficult side. It would be so much easier to just go along with what's easy and popular. And they knew they weren't going to. But there was that frustration of, I'm so weary. That's a real temptation of the flesh. Church, don't be weary in well-doing. As Hebrews 11.1 1 says, we have to see what is hoped for. We have to have the evidence of what is not seen. And we need to renew our minds and live in the confidence of what God promises. Look at the verse one more time and I'm done. Of what God promises in Isaiah 26.7, that though it seems rough now, you will be vindicated because he is just and righteous and good and the path will be smooth. Now let me ask you this morning, and I want to be very honest, and I want you to be honest in the next couple minutes in your heart and in your mind. And I don't want you to answer this. I don't want a response. This is an internal question. Do you really believe and know that the way of the righteous is smooth? Remember, we're not defining that the way we would think it would be defined. The definition the Lord wants is very different. But what I can assure you of this morning, as somebody that's been through a great deal of trial in my life, and many of you have been through far worse, that God's promise is sure and unbreakable to those who are righteous, to those who trust in Him, and those who are patient in their faith. The Lord loves His children and he will make our path smooth. The steadfast of mind, listen, one last sentence, the steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace. Let's pray. Lord, you keep the steadfast in mind in perfect peace because they trust in you. Father, this morning I can only know what's in my heart and mind. Each of us can only know what's in our hearts and minds. And Lord, right now I pray you would do a mighty work of teaching us and convicting us and encouraging and strengthening us. Lord, when our minds are set on you, when we lean on you and not on our own understanding, that is when you secure us and strengthen us in ways we can't even understand. 
Lord, I pray this week for myself. I pray this week for this family that you would give us steadfast minds that our hope and confidence and trust in you would be free of the bugs and free of the distractions and free of the weeds and be solely and focused on you, the author and finisher of our faith. And Lord, that we would see in a new way the promise and the fact that the way of those who trust in you and walk in your ways is smooth. Lord, we know the enemy will try to tell us lies and convince us that that word is not true. But Lord, it's your word and your word is truth. So stoke our faith, stoke our passion, stoke our commitment, stir us to righteousness. Give us a mind that is separate, set apart for you, sanctified by your holiness, not wavering one bit. Lord, we need that strength today. We need that strength right now. We pray that you would do that work each and every day and that our hearts every morning would wake up with the mercy that's fresh from you and we would be soft toward you, pliable, refined, ready to serve. On the night watch as we go to sleep, that we would be confident in you, anticipating the hope of heaven, but knowing there's work to be done until you return. Strengthen us, Lord. Secure us. We thank you for what you have We thank you for how you are going to do a mighty work in our lives and in our midst. We anticipate that, knowing that you're great and you're holy and that you're faithful. You'll never fail us. Just take a moment in the quiet of your heart to thank the Lord for what he's done and what he's going to do. Lord, we love you and we praise you. Now we're going to honor you in how we live. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.